welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. However, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God's Word Translation Hello! I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We want to thank you for joining us as we continue this series we began a few weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We've entitled the series, Why Am I Here? We wanted to do this series because there was probably never been a time in history in our culture when so many people seem to wonder whether their lives have meaning. One of our listeners recently told us that so many people, especially younger people, are asking this question either out loud or in their malaise and lack of direction in life. We agree. So to help us continue to see what the Bible has to say about this very important topic, we have R.D. Fierro back in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., you entitled this series, Why Am I Here? Before we get too far along, Would you like to comment on how you believe the widespread belief in evolution has contributed to what our listener called this malaise and lack of direction in life? Well, before I comment on that question, I would like to add to your thanks to all the listeners for tuning in today, whether they're listening on the broadcast or on the podcast. We know that people in today's world have a lot of demands on their time. We know that most of our lives are overfilled and overbusy. So we're grateful for anyone who devotes a part of their day or their week with us. Well, as we've mentioned a couple of times during this series, anyone who believes in what is often termed the general theory of evolution, they believe that all life originated by the random collision of some atoms and molecules in some corner of a long-forgotten world, some corner of a world that existed eons ago. Charles Darwin coined the phrase, and people talk about a warm little pond. Today, evolutionists are more likely to refer to, quote, deep ocean vents, or someplace that's more exotic than a warm little pond as the place where life originated. But regardless of where the evolutionist envisions that the first life began, they are united in the belief that there was no intelligence, there was no design that created life. And so anyone who starts with that foundational premise believes, as Dr. Jonathan Sarfati puts it, that we are all the result of goo to you via the zoo. In other words, if all life began as a result of blind, random chance, all subsequent life must be the product of a series of blind, random chances. It may be an incredibly long series of such chances, but we're all products of chance. Right. And speaking frankly, there is just no way to coherently extract 
a meaningful purpose for life that is just the result of a series, maybe a very long series, but just the result of a series of blind, random collisions of inanimate particles. But there are people who are sometimes termed theistic evolutionists, who believe God created life, but then used an evolutionary process to bring about changes down through the millennia. So we, people, are the product of a God-designed process, just not the process described in the Bible. And there are extensive problems with this idea of theistic evolution. We don't have time to go into all that today, but let me just quickly mention two of the problems that are always associated with the idea of theistic evolution. First, the idea of theistic evolution makes God seem like a rather inept designer. I mean, we're supposed to believe that God was able to put together the first living creature with all of the amazing complexity that is represented in even the simplest of living things. We're supposed to believe that God was able to achieve that degree of amazing complexity, but he wasn't able to go farther. He wasn't able to create the creatures that he really had envisioned. So that's one big problem with this whole idea of theistic evolution. It just makes God look like he's not a very competent designer. But the second problem is even worse. The Bible is very clear that death in creation is the result of sin. Such as Romans chapter 5 verse 12 which says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Exactly. So anyone who tries to envision God using an evolutionary process inevitably winds up in the position of believing that death occurred before man's first sin. I mean, after all, in the evolutionary process, all the creatures that were supposedly leading up to man had to die before the first man came into existence. So this puts death before sin and not after. Now, that creates some pretty grave Christological and theological problems. Now, I would encourage anyone who wants to explore this particular topic further, the errors and the problems with theistic evolution, I would encourage them to go to creation.com, which is the website for Creation Ministries International. They've got a wealth of articles on their website about this topic, and I think their articles are cogent and very well argued. But let's get back to your original question. The reason a widespread belief in evolution helps create a crisis of purpose in our culture is because a belief in the general theory of evolution in life as the result of the random collision of atoms and molecules, that kind of a belief strips purpose from human existence. Purpose is the opposite of blind, random chance. So if our existence on this earth is entirely due to a random and chaotic series of events with no design or purpose behind it, we are automatically denied a rational basis for asking what our purpose is. And people sense that even if they have never thought specifically about the chain of reasoning involved, as we often observe on Anchored by Truth, all of us view life through a set of starting axioms. If someone's starting axiom is that there is no God, then, for them, all that exists is the visible universe of matter, energy, time, and space. Well, no one believes that matter, energy, time, or space have personal attributes of intention, purpose, plans, or goals. 
So, a person without God tries to extract a meaning for their life out of unthinking, uncaring particles or forces. It's pretty obvious that's going to be a hopeless endeavor. Right. So, all that is left in that kind of a worldview is a profound sort of abiding hopelessness. In their worldview, people, including them, they could just as well not existed as existed. Their existence is just one more cosmic accident because cosmic accidents are all that is possible in an uncreated, undirected universe. You know, it's little wonder that this kind of a starting axiom produces feelings of a lack of worth or unimportance or purposelessness in the people who hold to it. Because that's the only thing that is possible in an uncreated, undirected, random universe. You can't derive purpose and meaning where there is no original source of purpose and meaning. But contrast the starting axiom that God doesn't exist, and therefore all of life and existence is one giant cosmic accident, with the axiom that God of the Bible exists. The God of the Bible is an all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, and intentional God who created human beings in His image. Therefore, we are all image-bearers of the universal sovereign. We possess inherent worth and dignity just because we bear His royal image. Our lives have inherent meaning and purpose because a sovereign God created us for a purpose. He can and does assign important tasks to us, and therefore we are to be about His business. You know, all people sense this truth innately, but we are prone to push it off because being the child of a royal, holy God does put limits on our lives. Yes, being the child of a sovereign means that we have not only inherent worth and dignity, but also rights and responsibilities. And because of those responsibilities, that is where the possibility for rebellion against the sovereign comes in. You know, we like the possession of the rights, but we're not so fond of embracing the responsibilities. If we want to eat fruit from the garden, we have to be sure that the tree that we're choosing is the one that is intended for us. Exactly. So, in one form or another, all of these concepts that we've addressed in the first several episodes of this series, in order to be able to know why we are here, we must be willing to contend with truth and reality. If we're not willing to contend with truth and reality, we're going to attempt to find meaning for our lives, but the base of that search is going to be based on a faulty proposition, a lie. And to be able to contend with reality, We are going to have to know something about God because God created this reality and God organized this reality to suit His purpose. And to understand God, we are going to have to become familiar with the Bible. The Bible tells about God, but it does more. It tells about the history of the heavens and earth, and the Bible tells where we fit within the Grand Saga. The Grand Saga includes not just the creation of the heavens and the earth, but also the fall and corruption of them. Fortunately, as soon as the fall occurred, God began a plan of redemption. And right now, we live in the period of history that is set between the first and the second coming of God's designated Messiah and Savior. Knowing all of this allows us to begin the search for our own role in the Grand Saga. That was one of the points you made in your book, Doors of Destiny. As the children who were the heroes were ending their adventure, you wrote, Now the older children knew that they were not the center of the universe, 
but they also knew that the universe was a much more magnificent place than they had ever imagined. They found that it was much more satisfying to play a role in a much bigger story than to be confined to the smaller stories that had formerly occupied so much of their attention, unquote. So as we contemplate the question of why we are here, we are often expressing a desire to know that we are important and that our lives have meaning. That's a very natural question for us to ask. But I believe that that question, beyond being just natural, actually reflects a part of God's intentional design for the only earthly creature who is described in the Bible as having been made in God's own image. That question, why am I here, is a part of God's design to make us turn to Him. Sometimes we will turn to God just for the reassurance of knowing that we matter to Him. But sometimes we will turn to Him to receive direction for our lives. We talked about that in our last show. And we said that we can think about our need for direction in terms of three categories. Our characters, our careers, and our callings. Right. Now, this is not to suggest that these three categories are the only areas of our lives where we need God's direction. For instance, most Christians will, at one time or another, look to God for direction about our relationships, who we should date, or who we should marry. But thinking about our purpose in life will almost inevitably have some connection to our characters, our careers, and our callings. And since we've covered those topics in our earlier shows, I don't think we need to dwell too much on the Bible's guidance about characters and careers. And for anyone who missed those episodes of Anchored by Truth, links to those shows are available on our website, crystalcbooks.com, or on your favorite podcast app. So today, you would like to go more deeply into why we are here as it relates to our callings. Yes, but just as a brief reminder, Our careers, essentially our work and vocations, may be connected with our calling as Christians, but they don't have to be. Obviously, ministers, missionaries, priests, pastors, etc., they have a very clear and direct connection between their work and what we are terming their calling. But all Christians, whether they are in a ministry vocational field or another vocational field, or frankly, no vocational field, All Christians can and should contribute to the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Plumbers can teach Sunday school, even if they don't have formal training as classroom teachers. And accountants can serve in food pantries, mechanics can lead small group Bible studies, and full-time moms can serve or lead music ministries, and a lot of moms are the volunteers staffing our crisis pregnancy centers. In fact, you were on the board of a local crisis pregnancy center for over 10 years, but your occupation during that time was as a senior government administrator or a consultant. And we have both known lawyers, clerical staff, nurses, repairmen, etc., who were all very effective in church and missions. Yes. So, one of the big points I really want to get across today is that all Christians, all Christians, have some kind of a calling. It's not a question of whether we have a calling to serve the kingdom, but it's rather the discovery of what our true calling is. And that's one of the reasons we use the opening scripture from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. For convenience, let me repeat it. Quote, However, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God, who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light, unquote. And that is such a strong scripture for helping us understand that all Christians have been called and have a calling. Notice the first phrase in the first sentence says that the people Peter was writing to were chosen. And then he quickly goes on to say that they belong to God. Peter was writing to first century Christians who had been widely dispersed, most likely because of the intense persecution that was common for the Christians in his day. In 1 Peter 1.1, Peter says he was writing to, quote, God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, close quote. Now that's the New Living Translation. Pontus, Galatia, and the other places that are mentioned in Peter's opening were Roman provinces that are in present-day Turkey. And Peter said his audience was living as foreigners in those provinces. In other words, those places were not their native homes. Right. So in the first chapter of his letter, Peter is telling the people that he's writing to that they were, again, quote, chosen. And then he repeats that same thing in chapter 2. In fact, in our opening scripture, which is from God's Word translation, he uses the word chosen twice. It's as though Peter really wants his readers to know that they were chosen. Indeed. Peter was writing to a widely dispersed group of believers who were far away from their homes, and they were probably still enduring significant persecution. So one reason he keeps telling his readers that they are chosen is because he wants to reassure them that the struggles that they are enduring do not mean in any way that God has somehow rejected them or has no more use for them. To the contrary, Peter is reminding his readers that God still has work for them to do. In other words, God still has a purpose for them. There is a reason for those people to be on this earth, and Peter is reminding them of that. That's a good lesson for us today. Resistance to Christianity has been steadily growing for the past two decades at least. So I'm sure there are Anchored by Truth listeners who need to know that this situation is far from new. But that doesn't mean we aren't still chosen by God. We are. And increasing resistance to the gospel certainly doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. He hasn't, won't, and can't. Said plainly, there is a reason we are here. Yes, we all have a calling to serve the kingdom, and Peter gives us insight into what that calling is. Peter says, quote, You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God, close quote. Well, that's a shorthand way of saying to his readers and to us that we are on this earth to tell others about God. And we're not just supposed to tell them that God exists. We are supposed to tell them about God's, quote, excellent qualities. In other words, we are to tell people enough about God so that they can come to a place where they know enough about the one true God to be able to distinguish him from all of the imposters, so that they can know enough about the one true God that they will begin to worship that God in spirit and in truth. And Peter reinforces the fact that his readers have this purpose by reminding his readers that they were called, quote, out of darkness into his marvelous light, close quote. So this is a general instruction about witnessing and testifying, but it also tells us so much more. 
It tells us that we are to continue to be faithful even when times get tough, and it tells us that the part of the reason we are here is to help call others out of the darkness and into God's marvelous light. But this doesn't necessarily tell us whether we are to be cooking in the church kitchen for Easter dinner or going to a foreign land to serve as a missionary. How do we know where our calling fits into the larger narrative? Well, there's no single answer to that, but there are principles that we can derive from the Bible that will help us make informed, godly decisions for ourselves. But of course, we won't be able to discern any of these principles if we haven't studied the Bible, so we know what it says. What are some of the principles you're thinking about? Well, first we need to make sure that we are clear about God's vision for His church, both the local church and the larger global church, what is sometimes termed the invisible church. There are a wide variety of tasks that are necessary for the proper functioning of a local church. But frankly, in our day and age, some churches have departed from the biblical model. Now, we need to be sure that as we serve in our local church, we serve in roles as they are described within the Bible. On Anchored by Truth, we're not here to start criticizing specific practices or specific churches or people. But we are here to remind everyone that the church belongs to God and not to us. So we have to be sure that everything that we do conforms to His instructions for His church. I know you once left a church because the church began encouraging its members to attend worship services of other faiths. While the person who started that program within the church you left may have been well-intentioned, the truth is that program is distinctly unbiblical. God takes worship very seriously. We can stand alongside people from other faiths in many causes, such as feeding the hungry or ending abortion, causes that involve general matters of welfare and charity. But we cannot worship alongside them, as that would mean violating the first and second commandments, among other problems. Right. Again, as we consider our calling within the kingdom of Christ, we must be very sure that we are focusing on Christ as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. We have to work very hard to be sure that the Bible forms the foundation for any ideas that we have about how we should contribute to building Christ's kingdom. The Apostle Paul warned both Timothy and Titus in the letters he sent to them that false teachers would come into the church hoping for what Paul termed dishonest gain. So a simple principle is that as we seek our calling for the kingdom, the first principle that we must follow is to check the calling that we think we've gotten and be sure that that calling is scripturally sound. I think that's a pretty basic principle and one that should almost go without saying. What are some of the other principles we should keep in mind as we seek our calling? Well, the second thing to realize is that our calling may be singular or it may be plural. In other words, God may assign us a task, which is ours and ours alone, and if He does so, we have to be prepared to stand alone if that's what God chooses. But quite often, and probably most often, we're going to be called alongside of others. As an example, The Apostle Paul initially received his call from Jesus individually. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, when he was still called Saul, was traveling as part of a group on the way to Damascus. But Acts chapter 9 verse 7 says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. That's from the New International Version. 
Right. But during Paul's missionary journeys, he had partners and companions. Paul initially partnered with another believer named Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement on whether to take a younger believer named John Mark along with them. So there came a point where Paul and Barnabas separated, and then Paul chose to now partner with Silas, and Barnabas and John Mark went their own way. This is an example of another principle we should note. We may receive our calling, start out alone, and later have partners. But the opposite may also happen. Billy Graham initially began his ministry alongside a man named Charles Templeton. But somewhere along the way, Templeton lost his faith, and Graham continued on alone, building what became one of the best-known ministries of the 20th century. So, our calling may start out singular and become plural, or start out plural and become singular. Said differently, the circumstances of our calling may change over time. But there is nothing wrong with that. Because things change does not mean we have been ineffective in our calling. Exactly right. So before we close for today, let's highlight the principles we have been discussing about knowing our calling, which is one part of knowing why we are here. The first principle, we have to be sure that any calling we think we've received is scripturally sound. The second is to recognize that our calling may be singular, or our calling may be plural. And I have one more principle about our calling that I would like to observe. During seasons when we may not be actively involved in a specific calling, God is preparing us for what is next. There's never going to be a time in our life when God does not want us to be serving Him. But there are seasons of life that are similar to the seasons that God has designed in the natural world. There are seasons when we should be actively serving, and there are other times when we should be resting and preparing for that next season of activity. You know, it takes wisdom to know and follow God's leading. But if we will follow God's leading, God will give us rest when we need it, and He will give us work to do when we need that. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for Christian missionaries who have been sent to bring the light of the gospel to those in need. A prayer for Christian missionaries. Father of redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today a great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news. We want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them. Lord, we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome. In fact, in some lands to speak about you brings a sentence of death. We know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers. Therefore, we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places. 
we ask that you watch over these missionaries, protecting them as they travel and minister and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name, we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.